prosecution outlined how accounting practices what fuck? What? what kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'll be in a museum. And fucking fodder for cartoonists now? Episode of Gutter Boys. This is Cam with my co-host JB. Uh, today we're joined by special guest Lane Milburn. Uh, how are you all doing today? Good. Doing great. <laughs> Hell yeah. Shut in. Isolated. Right. <laughs> all righty. Hope you all have been staying safe out there and, uh, you know, we're happy to bring you another episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, we've gotten some kind words from a lot of people recently, so I don't know if it's because you all are bored in quarantine or, uh, you know, what it is, but, you know, we appreciate you listening and, uh, you know, if you want to give us a five-star review or subscribe to us, that would definitely help us out and we appreciate that. Uh, JB, uh, you want to talk about some news? What's going on? Sure. Let's uh, let's get into some news. Uh, so, top of the story here, Kickstarter was initially going to be planning on releasing an anthology collecting a couple of excerpts from their successfully funded comics. And this was supposed to debut at TCAF, which was supposed to be next weekend. Obviously, that's not happening. Uh, so, instead, they're going to be uh, having it available online, uh, free for download for everyone who subscribes to the Kickstarter Reads newsletter by May 2nd. So, that's today. Uh, so, by the time you hear this, this will be pretty much done, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it online somewhere. I don't think it'll be that difficult to track down if you want to check it out. And it includes a pretty long list for obvious reasons, because Kickstarter has become a sort of by proxy comic publisher. But yeah, it's nice to see that this is going to be available for free. It's unfortunate we won't be able to get hard copies of this at TCAF, let alone not be able to attend TCAF, but that's another thing entirely. Were you all, I know JB and I were doing TCAF. Were you doing TCAF this year, Elaine? I was not planning on it. I have, I've, I've kind of been sitting out from all festivals for the last couple of years, just because I have been putting everything I can into trying to finish this next graphic novel, which I'm very close to finishing now. And I work full time. So I, I just kind of have to, you know, use every day I have available to kind of work on this book. So I, I love TCAF. I think the last time I was there, was 2018 and I had been I think in 2012 was the only other time but yeah it's it's such a great show I've never actually gotten to do it I made it in one time but couldn't afford the travel back like four or five years ago so I was pretty stoked Mm -hmm. this year but you know hopefully it all will be over next year and we can all hang out so yeah totally yeah yeah, it's a bummer. This was the first time I got in and Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well. I hope it this means that people that were that got into the show this year will be able to table next year by default. I, I don't know how that's going to be worked out. I think out. they yeah. said that. Yeah, okay. I think wasn't the wording postponed, which to me implies that like the guest list is going to be the same. I would hope. I don't know. I, I think that's was, what like, that yeah. means. Yeah. 
So hopefully so. We'll see. In other news, let's talk about the big boys. Uh, Marvel Comics has announced it will resume the release of new comics and collections starting on Wednesday, May 26th. Uh, So that is interesting. It's likely due to that DC announcement that happened two weeks ago. Yep. Force their hand. Oh, definitely. There's not a whole lot of news outside of that in their press release. Quote, over the next few weeks, Marvel will keep a balanced release schedule for its comics and trade collections as the industry continues to restart distribution and comic shops begin to reopen and adapt to current social distancing policies. Uh, Stay tuned for more information, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, nothing concrete yet, but uh, they're giving themselves at least a time frame. I saw that DC had put up like a comic shop locator on who's distributing their titles like outside of Diamond or not Mm -hmm. distributing stores that are actually going to be carrying the product. But, you know, it doesn't look like every store is doing my local shop's not. So I guess some stores are going to try to keep that Diamond relationship healthy. So see what's going to happen here in the next few months. It's going to be kind of interesting. Yeah. And in another announcement that surprises no one, looks like comic sales for March 2020 plummeted. Due to the COVID pandemic, it says here, March 2020 had 5,443,812 units in the top 300 comic lists, which is an increase uh, of the units from last month, uh, last month rather. Yeah. So this, this is not surprising considering what's been going on. Yeah. I saw some kind of article that said graphic novel sales are up, but I'm sure that's not the direct market. That's probably like your Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. I would imagine so, but you know. We'll see. I guess uh, we're about to enter. Did Diamond, since uh, Marvel and DC, did Diamond move up their start date for releases? Because I know that that was supposed to be in May as well. Nope. They did not change their date from what I can tell. It's pretty much the same as it was when they initially made that announcement. All right. Gotcha. Well, I wonder if uh, Marvel and DC are going to continue to distribute through their own channels or if they're actually just going to go straight back to Diamond. I know that everybody says it's just, you know, temporary, but, you know, I wonder cutting out the middleman if that's going to be feasible for either of those. They probably have, like, better things to worry about, but... Right. Well, I mean, I would say that what your comic shop is doing is likely indicative of what a lot of smaller shops have to do because they just don't have the, uh, you know, workforce and infrastructure to be able to handle multiple distributors. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. But that is a that's a problem across the board for all retailers, I think. I don't think that's specific to your shop. And yeah, I mean, larger shops won't have an issue f- with it, I- I'd imagine. But yeah, I, I don't know. I love that uh, throughout all this, it's like everybody's like, you know, I wonder how like the Wednesday Warrior crowd is feeling as far as like not being able to get their books. Like, uh, I haven't, I don't keep up with Comics Gate or anything like that, but I wonder if they're just like, we need to reopen <laughs> Comic Book Wednesdays. Um but we'll see what happens. But I think that it's like, you know, it's kind of weird because like around here there, we've got this like uh plan to return to normalcy uh, that's supposed to roll out in May. Have they like like reopening the economy in the state? Have they talked about that in Illinois where you all are? Yeah, they're holding the lockdown for the next month yeah. or so. So I don't I don't think that's going to be the case like the other states. I mean, I think on the other end of that spectrum, uh, you have states like Texas and Georgia that have already started opening things up. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next three weeks, because I think right. that'll be when we start seeing those uh, cases increasing. Yeah. And you, Cam, you're in Louisville, Kentucky, right? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm from Lexington, and so I've kind of been keeping up with what's going on in Kentucky with via chats with my family and stuff. So, but I guess I hadn't I hadn't really heard that they that I, I think last I had talked to them I hadn't heard that there was actually a push to reopen things. But I guess it just changes fast. Yeah, they're going to like it's like a week by week thing, starting with the second week in May, like the second week of May, like um, non-emergency like health, uh, like doctors will be able to open their practices again um, as far as like letting like X amount of patients in the room. And then week two, they're talking about, you know, you can make appointments with like your stylist and whatnot, but you can only have like I think it's like eight people in the entire salon and stuff mm. like that. So they're mm-hmm. slowly like it's this slow kind of th- gradual reopening throughout May. And I think Governor Bashir just was talking about it like. Like in one of the last two updates. So it's relatively new news. Um, yeah. but, you know, we'll see what happens because I really do think it's a little too early. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, nothing bad happens. I'm going to be one of those people that like stays in for an extra few weeks just to kind of let everybody else see what happens. Yeah. Totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I think that this is um, just not going to go away yeah. as many people want it to uh, for obvious reasons. And well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in September, October. I think that's a window for when people are expecting this to come back if it does kind of go away for a brief moment. But yeah, I don't know. And and, and the, yeah. the medical experts have been saying that uh, this will likely come back worse in the second wave. Uh, so they're talking, you know, increase in cases, but also specifically increase in death rate. So Ugh, I don't know. I don't so know. crazy. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, and it is so Governor Bashir is is he a Democrat? Yeah. And and then and the the former governor was was Bevin, who was a Republican. Yeah, he was a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that guy sucked. I mean, I don't know too much about Bashir, but yeah, I mean, it just I don't know. The whole push to reopen, it's very it's it, it just seems really really wrong. I don't know. It's honestly like the first like he's been I almost like feel like his hand is pushed in this because he's been so like cautious about everything else. And like, mm-hmm. you know, he was sending like state troopers to write down license plate of people that were going to church on Easter Sunday to enforce quarantine. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, and, and I, I don't know if like some of your family is like, you know, Kentucky rednecks. I've got some, unfortunately, on my <laughs> side who are like super like Trump and everything. And they're like calling him Hell Gestapo yeah. Andy and everything. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of discourse on Facebook, like from the Republicans. And, you know, they feel like Andy's taking away their rights like i saw a status the other day from an old co-worker that i had to delete that was like i'm not wearing my mask in public because my body my choice right and i was like jesus <laughs> fucking christ oh, God like damn. i'm done that's horrible <laughs> i i the family the family members who i don't disagree with who or, or i'm sorry the family members i don't agree with politically i actually don't really have a dialogue with and all which is probably for the the best so right <laughs> yeah, yeah that's but definitely mo- a safe mo- wise choice most of my family members are you know lefties so it's it's okay <laughs> yeah the majority of like the new generation of my family is but it's yeah. like my old ass aunt and uncles and i just have them on yeah. facebook like in muted you know because i don't totally. want to start any <laughs> but, totally totally yeah. I mean, I think the I think the move to open everything up is pretty transparent on a state level. It's mm-hmm. a lot of states that just do not want to continue paying out for unemployment. Yeah, you already sense. have that in Florida, where you have millions of Floridians still not receiving unemployment. Dude, I still haven't yeah. gotten mine. Like, I'm like, I keep requesting it so they're saying i'll get back payment but we've got like so many people waiting on it and they opened up a special phone line because they said there was like seventy-two thousand people that haven't gotten it yet and then the phone line that was like supposed to be the special call center to get everybody their payments crashed and it doesn't work anymore yeah. after one day so man yeah it's a joke it's just yeah. like 
if you weren't already feeling how hollowed out America's infrastructure was, you really are now. And it's like there could yeah. There's just no like there's just no like framework for supporting people in a crisis like this. And they're so easily could be. You know what I mean? It's it's just yeah. it's horrible. It's yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just like a stark illustration of everything that was that was already wrong is, is like in stark relief now. So, yeah, it's it's pretty infuriating. Yeah. Well, you know, America is a third world country in a Gucci belt. So it's fine. <laughs> All right. Y'all ready to move to questions? Let's do it. Yeah. All righty. Lane, we got some specific questions for you and a couple remarks from listeners. Yeah. All righty. We'll start it off first. Caleb Arecchio. Um, Arecchio. I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name, bud. Uh, love your book, though. But he asked uh, Arthur C. Clarke or Heinlein. So I okay, this is a tough one, and and I'm I don't have a clear answer because I've only read one book by each author. I think the only Heinlein I've ever read was did did he write Glory Road, this like fantasy novel? It, it, it's kind of one of his like less celebrated works, I think, but it's a super weird fantasy novel. I read that many years ago and loved it. And I also have, and by Arthur C. Clarke, I have only read Childhood's End, which I remember liking okay. I might have to say, I, I, I'm, I might have to say Heinlein, even though like I should have read Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers by this point, but it's never too late, so... Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm familiar like with their names, but I've actually never read any of their books. So I have nothing to add there. JB, have you, are you familiar with either of their work? I am, but I haven't read enough of it. I actually, just based on like cover art, I preferred Cull comics just because I feel like those covers were like even more over the top. Did anybody else read them? They're like a barbarian comic. I know what you're talking about, but I didn't read any. Okay. They were usually found in like dollar bins. That's why I think I, I know. I, I think I know what that is. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, next question was uh, from Gingerbridge. And I think JB had a second follow up from them. So we'll just go ahead and knock both of those out. Um, hi, Gutter Gang and Lane. Uh, when and how did you start working at Quimby's? Any favorite memories? Yeah, um, I started working at Quimby's, I think, just being kind of in the right place, right time, being going in there often, being part of the, the Chicago comics scene and selling my zines and books there. And I, I had just been laid off from Whole Foods. I, I had worked at Whole Foods for six years in three different states, and I put in an application and got an interview and got hired. So I think it was just luck, you know, being at the right place at the right time. And my favorite thing about working there was like working with young kids. Kids who were kind of and and really just whoever though, but like people who were selling their zines and comics and books for the for the first time and were, were getting payouts for the first time and who had who were visiting from out of state or or just like we're we're super excited to have to see the store and then like have their work in the store and I I I, I always like took extra time with them to like help them promote their their stuff and take like a picture of them in the store and all that and that was just super fun that. There's, there was an institution where anyone who, you know, made like a print on demand comic or, or anything with like a staple binding could could sell it and make a tiny bit of cash, but at least reach someone with their work and not be lost in, in the like, you know, flow of social media stuff. Like I it, it, that was like really awesome. Definitely my favorite part of working there. 
And I think, it, yeah, I mean, it's really just kind of like one of the last, very, very last institutions offering that sort of thing. So for sure. I'm always like sure to go in there every time I go to Chicago for a show or something like that. I really like the shops. So and yeah, uh, yeah, we were talking about it all fair. That's where I actually ran into you was actually consigning zines for the yeah, first time. Totally. So, I remember, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, JB, do you have a follow up question from um, Gingerbridge? Yes, I do. Yes, they also asked, how many of each zine, comic, or book do you bring to events? And I think we can answer that across the board for all of us. Yeah, I bring like, I bring like, so usually I'll, I'll, I'll create a new zine for each show I've, I've done over many years of, of doing shows. I'll, I'll usually have a new zine uh, for each show and I'll bring like 50 copies of the, of the newest zine and then maybe like 10 copies of, of each of my bigger books, Death Trap and 12 Gems, and then, and then whatever other kind of random old back issues I have, I usually just kind of stuff them into one box and bring them to the show. So that's, that's pretty much, yeah, how, how I would always do it. Um, usually what I'll do is like, I'll usually know exactly what shows I'm doing before the first show I go to that year. So I'll make, you know, 200 to 300 copies of a book. And then I split it up over how many shows there are. But if for some reason I'm not selling well, as I, as well as I thought, then I'll bring more copies. But usually I try to bring like 30 to 50 of like a new book. And then if it's old, I just bring everything that I have. Mm -hmm. But I do try to like, if I'm like promoting or, you know, at shows with the new book, I try to ration out copies to take to each show. So that way I don't have to reprint if at all possible. Right. But yeah, the number just kind of depends. Luckily, every year the number increases a little bit for me, but you know, it's nothing that's not manageable or, you know, too much of an inconvenience to take the shows for me or anything like that. Yeah. I uh, normally try to carry around 30 to 40 copies of whatever it is that I'm uh, selling at any given show. But it also depends on if it's like a new book that I know that'll probably move a lot more. I'll try to bring like 50 or 60 of those. Mm -hmm. But it also really just depends on the on the show. You know, like I feel like if it's a zine fest or whatever, you don't really need to bring that many because it's a one day event. Whereas like if you're looking at a two or three day event, you probably want to pack in a little more. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Next question that I had, actually, this was just a statement from user Beth C wrote, I don't know what the Gutter Boys is, but I just wanted to say that I love and I'm a fan of all of your work. Alrighty. Thank you, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, yeah, dude, comics asked, what's your favorite sci-fi movie? Okay. Uh, that's hard. I, um, geez. Um, I'm probably I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say Stalker, which I don't think is like a proper sci-fi movie. I mean, it's it's like, a you know, it's a sci-fi art film. So I guess it, it qualifies, but it'd probably be Stalker or Solaris. I, I, I just really love Tarkovsky and I go and I return to and think about those movies all the time. And I like how they're he it's it's kind of looser with sci-fi conventions than than a more um traditional pulp sci-fi movie i'm also a big fan of this really insane movie um on the silver globe by the polish director zulowski which is just like i it's kind of impossible to describe but you, you'll just have to look it up if you haven't heard of it it's totally amazing again like a you know a sci-fi art film and not a more traditional sci-fi movie so yeah those those are kind of my favorites hell yeah nice. uh what about you cam 
Man, so I really, I know it's like kind of like a, a give me answer. I'm, I really like Forbidden Planet. I just really like the imagery of like that old kind of stuff. But yeah. I watched Moon recently and, um, that was oh, actually like really good. I was really like actually surprised because I, I didn't know if the movie would make me feel like I had cabin fever in a bad way. But, um, I guess because it's like, I don't really have a favorite one, but I really enjoyed Moon lately. I, I really think that Blade Runner deserves all the hype that it gets. I don't think that it's an overhyped movie either, just for the costume design and everything like that. I really think that uh, Ridley Scott knocked that out of the park for the first one. I still haven't, I've seen 2049 one time, but I haven't, you know, I need to go and revisit that one. Yeah, I haven't seen 2049. We actually, my partner, Anya Davidson and I, we were just watching, we, we started watching Moon because of, uh, because it's about isolation and everything. <laughs> and, um, and I, I think I was really tired. So, so like we started it and we only got like 20 minutes in, but I was enjoying it, but I definitely want to finish it soon. It, yeah, it was very, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely recommend finishing it. It's got a really cool like uh, ending and everything like that. It's mm-hmm. a pretty good little flick. Uh, what about you, JB? Yeah, most of the sci-fi movies that I really love usually border on horror. So, you know, movies that are kind of Lovecraftian, I would say. So things like The Thing or Stuart Gordon's From Beyond, I would still classify as mm-hmm. sci-fi. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, they're, they're both classics. But there's a couple of like non-horror-ish sci-fi stuff. Like I personally really love uh, Jeff Murphy's The Quiet Earth, uh, which is like a really awesome post-apocalyptic movie from New Zealand. Uh, that one I would highly recommend. Oh, I haven't heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, me either. Yeah, it's it's great. That one is definitely about isolation for sure. I mean, I definitely agree with Lane on uh, Tarkovsky. Like, I'm a huge fan of Stalker. That's like one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only one I've seen of his. I mean, yeah, like Extro, that's another one that I really, really love. It is kind of more horror than anything else, but still. Oh, yeah, that that that's the one with like the creature that walks like backwards. That thing on it's all four uh, on, on all, all fours. Yeah. Yeah, the, no, it's like a British that. horror movie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's about like this guy that gets abducted and disappears and then he just suddenly comes back as if nothing happened. And he starts like hanging out more with his kid and you start realizing that this guy isn't the same anymore after he'd been abducted. And it's like implied that he's trying to transform his kid into whatever he's turned into. It's, uh, it's okay. really weird. Kind of like that movie Mommy Dearest where she got facial surgery. Like reconstructive oh, surgery yeah, yeah, and the yeah. mom comes back different. I need to check yeah. that out though. It sounds uh, tight. Yeah, it's really, really good. And then like pretty much most of David Cronenberg's early body horror work. Oh, I yeah, would yeah. Classify as oh, sci-fi, yeah, you know. Sure. So. so good. Oh, amazing. Scanners and Videodrome. Those are all Yeah, and the brood. The brood. Oh, the brood, so yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Amazing. Alrighty. Uh, another question for you, Lane, from a uh, friend of the show, Eric Schneider Gutierrez. What parts of world building do you enjoy the most? Oh, that's a tough one. I, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think I most enjoy creating a setting. I think like I, my, my work has changed a lot since any, anything that, that has been published. I I mean, I've been working on this, this book, it's called Lure, L-U-R-E for about four years and it's, it's sci-fi, but it's, it's got more, it, it has a degree of realism and a degree of autobiographical material and more of everyday life. So it like, I think my, my work is, is moving in, in more into that direction of, of like worlds that are, that are science fiction-y, but, but that aren't these like giant escapist fantasy, like the, the, the one, the one that I'm working on now is, is kind of dystopian. The sci-fi aspects are kind of played down, but it, 
does still have world building. And I, I really like trying to create a setting and trying to create a um, just a setting that feels palpable. In the, um, and I think that's what I most enjoy in, in the world building executed by other creators. So and another thing that I'm thinking about in my work more than ever before is the, the combination of realistic elements and fantastical or genre elements, the balance and the, yeah, just how to, how to fit all of those parts together. I, I enjoy that too, even though it, it can be really tricky, but the, the book I'm working on now is, is, I guess I think of it as being like, it's almost like 70% realism and 30% sci-fi instead of being a more, you know, a world that, it, that has no relationship whatsoever with our world. So that's kind of the direction I'm moving into. Um, yeah. I, I, thanks for that question. I, <laughs> I enjoy Enjoy that question. Hell yeah. Another question that we had, any good quarantine reading suggestions? That comes from Alex. I have been getting less reading done during quarantine than I would have hoped. I, th I think I've just been like, it's just, it's just been a little bit agitating. Like I, I don't feel, I don't like maybe feel as calm as I would like to in order to read and stuff. But I'm trying to think. I I just read my friend Lale Westfin's book, Grip. That was oh, inc yeah. incredible. Just mm -hmm. published by Chicago-based Perfectly Acceptable Press. Uh, I read another, another pal, Carlos Gonzalez's book, Gates of Plaza. And right now I'm reading a novel by the Cuban author Alejo Carpentier that, that I enjoy. It's, he's, he was uh, a Cuban author working in like the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, but he usually wrote about the Caribbean during the late 18th century, during the French Revolution and the, the, uh, the Haitian Revolution. Um, I've kind of been wanting to escape into history lately. I don't know why, but that's that's kind of been my, my escape from everything that's going on right now. I don't really want to read about like what's... Like, like pandemics or, you know, any or <laughs> isolation really. So, yeah. What about you, JB? You reading anything? Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, I, I reread a lot of stuff for, you know, the guests that we've had. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we'll be touching on a little bit of that in the second half with Lane. For sure. But I'm trying to think. I would recommend reading, it's not a comic, um, this book called Heart of a Dog. It's not, uh, again, it's not a comic. I'm sorry. I should even, should I even bring this up? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, yeah, it's by uh, Mikhail Bulgakov. I feel like a lot of people uh, mainly know him for Master and Margarita. Margarita. Yeah, yeah I, I love that book. Uh, but I actually think Heart of a Dog is a better book in a lot of ways. And I don't know. I just really, really love that book. So I would recommend anybody that's read Master and Margarita to to read that one. It's, it's, a, it's a solid read. Is it, is, is it in a similar vein with, with like the fantasy elements and, and everything? Cause, no. Cause I, don't, I've, I've, I know the title, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, no. This story is actually a little more grounded in a way. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's about this scientist who's developing some sort of new procedure uh, using animal organs. And uh, he basically takes a, a dog and replaces its heart with a human heart. And then the dog slowly begins to transform into a person over time. Wow. Yeah. So, like, initially it starts to, like, understand speech and starts to talk. And it's, like, initially very vulgar. And all it does is just curse repeatedly over mm -hmm. and over again. Uh, it's a very funny book, but it's, I don't know, I think it's very interesting. It's got elements of Shelley Frankenstein for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. But but it definitely takes that sort of vein of uh, sci-fi and pushes it into the more kind of, like, Russian tradition of literature. Yeah, it sounds awesome. 
For sure. I've been reading as far as like regular books. I've been, there's a book and it's like infuriating, but it's called The Billionaire's Vinegar. And it's about like the most expensive bottle of wine in the world. And it like, apparently it originated from Thomas Jefferson's collection, but like all these like weird, not weird people, but just rich people have bought it. And uh, you just, it's just a documentary, not a documentary, but like a book about, you know, where this bottle of wines ended up and, you know, who's all owned it and like the story of it. Um, But it's like nonfiction. So it's kind of interesting, but it's also like sickening that people have like hundreds of thousands of dollars to just blow on a bottle of wine because it's really old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've also been reading some Raymond Chandler stuff. I'm reading The Lady in the Lake right now. Just I'm I'm thinking about trying to do some detective comics uh, next year. So I'm trying to like get to some of that Chandler source material to kind of figure out like mood and setting and whatnot. As far as comics, Yoshiharu Shige, uh, he has two books out. New York Review Comics put one out and Drawn and Quarterly did recently. Uh, The Man Without Talent in the Swamp. I would recommend those. Oh, really yeah, Tanao Tsuge's brother, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah so good. Yeah, I, I love both of their stuff, but um, I'm excited that Drawn and Quarterly is about, I think they're doing, they have a planned seven book series of his work, and this is the first one that came yeah, out. Okay. So really cool to see that stuff kind of translated. And I guess Ryan Holmberg's doing the translations on that. And usually if he touches something, I'm going to pick it up just because I feel like he's Cold. got pretty good taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another question I had, well, this isn't a question. This is mainly to you and me, JB from Doug. Will you all ever stop posting Sopranos memes? That's a hard no for me. Same. Yeah. Next and question. Then, uh, that's all the questions <laughs> I had. I think you had one more. Uh, no, that was it for me too. Cool. So um, that about wraps it up for the first half, y'all. We'll be right back after this break with our special guest, Lane Milburn. We'll be right back.
we're back for the second half with Lane Milburn. Lane Milburn. Hello. <laughs> Lane. Yeah, so Lane, uh, so I got introduced to your work through your first published book, Death Trap. Mm-hmm. Was that your first comic? Um, that was not my first comic. I, it was my first comic sort of full-length book. I think that book is like 112 pages. I began creating comics in college, actually. I went to school at MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, and I was a painting major initially. And I met up with a, a, a group of people who were mostly not like in the in the illustration department, who were more kind of in the fine arts department, but who had kind of a, a side interest in comics. And we formed a sort of a publishing collective called Closed Caption Comics that that included some some of my friends, um, Connor Steckschulte, Noel Freiber, Molly Goldstrom, Molly Colleen O'Connell, Ryan Cecil Smith, and uh, a few others. We kind of, we were publishing, um, kind of irregularly publishing these anthologies and, and kind of like printing them uh, on the school printers, either with photocopy or screen printing or some mixture of those. And um, we all were kind of also working on on our own individual works uh, at the same time. So I had published several kind of random shorter mini comics over the years throughout undergrad before working on Death Trap. And uh, many of us in that, in in CCC were also in Brian Ralph's cartooning class at MICA, which was like, which was really formative and really awesome. He was a member of, of Fort, the Fort Thunder Collective. He's he he did a zombie comic called Daybreak that's just been made into a Netflix series. Okay, and yeah. He, he was extremely you know encouraging to us, and he he was he was a great teacher. So um, I still think about his class uh, often. So yeah, I had done a handful of things before before Death Trap. Was it mainly like mini comics and zines and whatnot? It was mainly mini comics and zines, yeah, and and shorter stories. And Death Trap was self-published in 2010 with a Zarek grant. And I think that may have been one of the last years they were offering the self-publishing grant. But uh, that book I completed very, very fast. I, I drew it. All, it's the dimensions are pretty small, um, and it was drawn almost to size. I, I think I drew the whole thing in in like six months or less, and and or maybe seven or eight months there thereabouts, and um, just kind of made I made up the story as I went along. That book is kind of an anomaly for me because my subsequent books have taken much, much, much longer. So. Um, so you went yeah. in without a script. Um, that's right. I, okay. I had, I had the, I had kind of a story arc in my head. The story is kind of a goofy, um, action-packed horror story that is a little bit Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but has some offbeat. This is for listeners who may not know of it. Like, it, yeah, it, it has um, goofy kind of creature villains who 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 are kind of silly and but sinister and violent. So it's it's kind of a horror action story. It, it doesn't have a ton of dialogue, as I remember, but um, it was like a like a. 100 page story and then i had another shorter kind of political sci-fi story in that collection so that was my first bound like perfect bound book yeah i remember it opening up with that story and it threw me off quite a bit (laughs) because i was you know getting ready for just based on the cover right especially the back cover the back cover is actually what got me to get the book oh cool and when i flipped to the first story and it was like this very pulp early sci-fi comic 
Yeah. I, I didn't know what to make of it. And then obviously it's it's pretty short. And then yeah. it just kind of dives right into Death Trap from there. Right. And the name of that character that's on the back of the book, can you remind me what the name of that character is? Oh my God. I'm, <laughs> I think it's William, but I'm not totally sure. I think that's I, right. <laughs> yeah. William, I, yeah. I haven't, I haven't looked at or read that book in many, many years, but I think, I think the, the villains have these kind of like generic names. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And William in particular is like very jarring. Like the way you introduce that character and when you initially like first see him, I yeah. the the horror element immediately kicked in because that that character design is so scary on so oh. many existential levels. Oh, so yeah, that that character is a I had to, I had kind of doodled that character out in my sketchbooks years before, uh, and I, I had incorporated him to, into a few other little stories and mini comics. He doesn't really have like a, a fixed name or anything, but the but the way he's designed is he he has this kind of like he he's wearing like uh, the only thing he's wearing is is like a pair of briefs and and he's got like a muscular like <laughs> like kind of muscular and flabby body and then just the head of a cartoon the head and neck of a cartoon goose and he never speaks and um he so in in the death trap book he's the the scene that introduces him is kind of based on the famous scene from deliverance of the boy on the bridge playing the banjo um because he's sitting in a tree playing a banjo and it's kind of ominous and there's this like woodland scenery that's that's where i took the idea from yeah, and I would say that your scene is far more unnerving than oh, the wow, deliverance scene. That says a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just—it's banjo music, and then you look up. The characters look up, and here is this jacked, <laughs> giant man with like a cartoonish goose head playing, playing like fiddling a banjo, and that image just like burned into my mind. I was like, "Oh man, that is fucking grotesque." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But Thanks, yeah, I, guess. I, I really, I, I do really love that book. Uh, I think it is like very successful as a horror story in ways that like, I, I think it's very difficult to write a very good horror comic in general. I think that genre mm -hmm. specifically is very difficult to nail in comic form for some reason. Mm -hmm. And very few books really pull it off to mm -hmm. like unnerve the reader in that way. And I think that book does it successfully. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. And uh, actually, going back to your schooling, so I know that you had mentioned that in the past, uh, your background was more figure painting, correct? Yes. I. So, um, in high school, I created a portfolio of work that got me into art school um, that it was all um, pretty classical representational figure portraits and, and uh, uh, figure studies and still lifes. And I was continu I continued to make that work into college. And I was kind of, I, I, I was kind of flip-flopping between the two modes. I, for, for a while, I was focusing on the figurative painting and then comics were kind of a, a side thing. And then I think the turning point for me was when I was, I went to Norway in the summer of 2007 for eight weeks for a, a, a special study abroad program with the Norwegian painter Odd Nerdrum. I don't know if you all know his work, but um, he's got this kind of classical like atelier workshop in southern Norway. He's pretty internationally famous and he does these kind of Rembrandt style figurative scenes and, and, 
portraits, landscapes, still lifes, and like you won't see any objects in his paintings from like the 20th century. So they have a little bit of a pastiche feel where they they like feel very intentionally not of this time, not of this era. Um, but um, so it was a pretty weird experience going and studying with this painter. It was pretty cool. It was my first time out of the United States. But his followers were almost kind of like a cult where they were all like kind of they were they were very wholesale imitating his style and and his kind of like reactionary ideology which sucked and it was just very weird and kind of it, it kind of like I I think overall it, it was a positive experience and, and a formative experience and everything but I but I think it kind of made me finally decide to pursue comics I don't totally understand why, but I think I just kind of was like, okay, I, I think I felt that I could more be myself in comics. I had already begun making connections in the comics world because I think from about 2006 onward, me and my friends in closed caption comics were exhibiting at festivals. The first festival we exhibited at was SPX, the Small Press Expo in Bethesda, Maryland, about a 45 minute drive from Baltimore where we were going to school. So I had already just begun having a life in that world and I, and I had no desire to like move to New York or try to be a part of the kind of niche like figurative painting world or and I had no desire to like continue being part of this painter's inner circle or whatever and so that that was I think the kind of turning point for me. So I, I actually noticed you posted some paintings recently. Are you still actively? Because I think those were older works that you were posting on Instagram recently. Are yeah, you still yeah. actively painting as much though? I know you're you know pretty much swimming in comics now, but do you still paint every once in a while? No, no, and and I don't even like I don't even really do like sketchbook stuff from life anymore. I used to do that all the time, and yeah, I just posted to my stories recently a bunch of artwork I made in undergrad, like charcoal drawings and and oil paintings and stuff. Yeah, I just don't. I think I I just through my friends and and everything. I just fell into like a really 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 deep love of the comics form, and that just kind of became my obsession. And you know, it's it's so so completely time consuming that I, yeah, I don't really have all of my, my creative and artistic time is just poured into comics these days. So I have done some illustration work. That's kind of the only single image stuff I've been doing. And I, and I want to go back to more, I've done some like digital um, album covers for bands and everything digitally colored, but I want to go back to more gouache painting for, for illustration work, I think. So that, that will be me returning to that somewhat, but yeah, I don't, it, it's just a very different mentality. Like I don't really work from life that much anymore. And I, I work out of my head pretty much exclusively. So, right. Well, so, and you know, you kind of mentioned that, you know, you're kind of all in on comics now. So I kind of look at your work, everything I've seen, like, it seems like it's really your style to me comes off as very classical. And what I mean by that is I see a lot of that EC kind of stuff in it. Like as far as like, I don't know if that's a direct influence. And a lot of your stuff looks like it could like really belong in like the heyday of like heavy metal in like the 70s and 80s. Uh, is that like a conscious, you know, inspiration to you? What are you usually looking at? Like what are some of your favorite comics and what do you look at for inspiration in comics? Yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, I, I love EC. Um, I, I always kind of EC, my relationship with EC comics is more kind of like flipping through them to look at the artwork and, and not so much reading the stories. Like, I, I, I mean, they're fine and everything, but just the art, the the inking, the design, everything in, in that era of comics is, and, and the draftsmanship is, is super cool. And, and you're right that it does 
it does have a relationship, I think, to my education in in, in traditional figurative art and life drawing and all that stuff. Um, and definitely the, the French heavy metal stuff is still just what I love. Like I, Mobius is, I got like, I ordered an expensive, one of those Marvel epic old 80s editions uh, of the collected airtight garage oh, when yeah. I was still an undergrad. And that is still like, that is still one of my absolute favorite comics of all time. I look at that all the time. Mobius is is an absolute god. Like, I, I love all of the heavy metal stuff. Yeah, that's definitely... I mean, the comics that I look at and take inspiration from are, are so many and so varied. But right. um, that was... a the Yeah, the EC and the heavy metal stuff was definitely a very formative influence, for sure. Yeah, because like, I, I, I just look at your work and it just seems like... It's not even like that it's copying it or anything. It just looks like it would fit, you know, right in with that kind of stuff. Which is, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like comics are kind of moving away from that traditional kind of look. So it's really refreshing to see certain cartoonists stick with that. Which is what I think is really appealing about your work. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I haven't seen too much of the new book outside of what you've posted. We were kind of talking off air about it uh, before. So where are you mm -hmm. at with the new book? You said it was called Lore, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's called... Yeah, it's called Lure and it's very, very different, I think, from all of my past work. I mean, continue sort of from your question before. I think it still does incorporate visually some of that some of the the figure drawing and everything. The the style of it is very, very different than any of my past work. It's it's a clear line style um, that's I ink with a with a nib, and then it's digitally colored and photoshopped. But I think like the I think the the figure drawing is is I think that that background is still palpable there. Like I think like some of that observational drawing is is still there because I'm I'm not really working in a way so much where I have like a cartoon language for all the characters and objects and environments I draw. A lot of it is looking at references and looking at how you know like looking at like a coffee maker to to draw a coffee maker the way it really looks um and so i think that some of that i think yeah that that background in the traditional fine arts is is definitely coming into play and in, in kind of a subtle way or something but just to say what the book is about it's it takes place in an alternate reality where the earth instead of being orbited by the moon is orbited by a mirror earth which is an ocean planet that only has like this one little island on it and it, the 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 second planet is called lure and it's it's kind of um a vacation destination for the rich that's being turned into a a future home um for for the rich and so it's kind of, I, I guess I was kind of thinking of the Ursula K. Le Guin novel, The Dispossessed, which has the two planets. I don't know if they're orbiting around each other, like in like a twin planet system or whatever, but they. I know that one in that book, there's like a capitalist planet and a socialist planet. I think I was just loosely incorporating some of those ideas. And so like, but the, the story also incorporates a lot more stuff from a lot of more autobiographical material. The main character is, is a woman who's a graphic designer for a company that's kind of a standard in for Whole Foods. I was this graphic designer for Whole Foods for many years, and I, I've also had a number of weird corporate art gigs over the years, like a couple of very short gigs that, that were like that were very unsuccessful in terms of like my performance at the, at those jobs. And, and, and they were very short lived. Like I was graphic designer for kind of a quasi corporate startup that made mail order cocktail kits. 
and that ended badly. I was laid off like with no notice and um, I, I had another job where they was doing something called graphic recording. My job would have been to like fly out to these like horrible corporate events like Bank of America lectures and stuff and to like stand up on stage and my job would have been to like cartoon out the contents of a lecture on like a piece of foam core or like digitally. Oh, yeah. uh, it, it would have been like and I I, be, I, I I like beat out like dozens of other people to get this job and I was I had begun like a paid a period of paid internship paid training and but it was just so terrible it was like so not my world this kind of corporate startup world and so I've put taken a lot of that stuff and put it in the story of this book so the tone of it like I've I've also just like really tried to grow as a writer and and tr- I've tried to learn how to write more realistic dialogue and do more realistic characterization and so it's taken a long time like I'm very fussy I throw a lot of things out I've been doing a lot of editing and rewrites and so it's um it's just taken a long time and i that's that's also why i didn't chose not to serialize this book was because i knew i was just going to be kind of like reworking every little aspect of it as i went along but it's definitely coming together now and it'll it'll definitely be finished sometime this year so did have you been working on this since you completed 12 gems or was there a few start and stop projects like as far as like long form books yeah, so so be, before I began working on this book, Lure, I threw out two years of work after I finished Twelve Gems, just because I had these like non-starter ideas for stories uh, that were just messes. And I one of them, the, the the one that took about a year. There were there were a few that kind of occupied the space of one year, and then there was one that occupied the space of an, another full year that started out as a Vice, a comic on Vice.com called Envoy, and I was just reading back over. I was I just like I was just like I really don't think the writing is there and I don't think the idea is there and and I and it was like extremely painful to throw that all out but something after I did that after I decided that I wasn't going to continue on with any of that work something really strange happened where I think my work writing in particular became much much stronger like suddenly and I've just been working really hard to kind of like come to a different kind of tone for the writing and to develop a story arc and develop the themes and like I'm really really happy with how this book is shaping up and and it sounds I know it sounds crazy to throw out that much work but I feel like it was worth it and I think that this book is far far better than all of my past work so yeah I'm really excited to, to share it with you guys yeah I'm excited to read it so what's the length on it um, are you do you know how many pages it's about to be roundabout yeah it's gonna be almost 200 full color pages um, wow. and and, I've, nice. and I've, I've I've got like 20 or 30 left. And, and that'll be it. So I'll are you d- digitally coloring it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just kind of like flat Photoshop color. It kind of, I hope that it kind of evokes like a Mobius. Uh, I love the flat coloring in those Mobius comics. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. You Are you planning on self-publishing? Are you talking with some publishers? You don't have to like spill any kind of like exclusive news, but I mean, are you planning on shopping it around? Do you already have some plans in motion for that? Um, I've been talking to Fanographics about doing it, so it's not uh, official yet. But but yeah, that's the plan. So okay, I I love them. I've, I've, I love working with them. So yeah, that's that's the plan. So you know, with the book here, you mentioned that you know you threw out all your other work. Are you literally throwing that out, or are you just like kind of you're keeping the pages and like the Envoy stuff? Or are you are you like literally throwing that out, or is it just like an emotional like I'm gonna stop working on this and it, and you're just done with it? Like, are you physically throwing the work out? 
No, no, no. I'm keeping, I have all the okay. pages and everything. <laughs> no, because I no, throw yeah. stuff away. Like, you know, like I'll throw stuff away sometimes stupidly. Sure, sure. But, you know, so I just didn't know if, you know, what you meant by that. So, and you were doing another like auto bio kind of strip on Vice for a while too, right? I feel like that was more recent, maybe last year or the year before. Yeah, I started doing diary comics on Instagram and Vice asked me to contribute some. I, it was very briefly that I came back and did a couple strips for them of those diary strips uh, for Vice. And I started doing the diary comics a couple years ago because I think I was wor- I was kind of worried about the fact that I had been taking so long on this big book. And I didn't I, knew, I, I, I had decided I didn't want to serialize it. I had I was a little bit tormented by that decision. And I didn't I, I wanted to just work on the book and not work on random little other projects. I mean, I did do a couple of zines in the meantime, but I didn't really want to work on shorter comics to take to shows and everything, which is why I haven't been super present at shows lately, but I I started to just worry, I guess, about being too out of sight, out of mind. And so I started making the diary comics and I also kind of saw them as a writing exercise and I've kind of stopped doing them for the time being just because like I don't think diary comics are ultimately what the main thing I want to be creating like I I think that I you know you you asked about world building earlier and I think that like my real love with creating comics is kind of in world building and creating these big long stories and drawing these kind of fantastical images and environments and everything and that's what I really love and um, I like the diary comics but I, I I think it's just not my main kind of it's not the thing I'm most enthusiastic about but I did I do like those comics and I did enjoy working on and I may come back to them to a degree like to a lesser degree and I but yeah I, I, I kind of thought of them as an exercise well with and those stylistically were such a departure from anything else I've seen by you uh, it almost reminds yeah. me of like Jules Pfeiffer like Phantom Tollbooth style illustration Um, As far as like your approach to that, was that like a conscious decision? Was it like made to be, you know, did you want to take a break from what you were drawing at the time? So it was like a a conscious departure from like the style you were working in? Or was that just something you wanted to try? Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, like stylistically, there was no real plan. There was no one I was imitating necessarily. But it was it was intended to be just very off the cuff, drawn very quickly and rough and, you know, not worrying about draftsmanship and and everything. Um, And it was more for me kind of just about the writing and it was like a writing mm-hmm. exercise and just kind of like drawing them out quickly, scanning them, posting them. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's turning out really great. I've, I've been loving what you've been posting. So, I'm excited to see it, Thanks. it come to fruition when, when it finally you. gets released. Yeah. So, we're looking at probably 2021, late 2021, I would imagine, is the pipeline? Yeah, yeah mid, mid to late, I would say, yeah. Possibly yeah, summer 2021, yeah. Yeah, around SPX time, I would imagine, probably be mm-hmm. a good time to launch that. Um, as far as if you're doing it with Fana, do you like working with them? I, I know you mentioned we've talked, we usually talk about like, you know, experience with publishers on here. So you mentioned that you did like working with them. We had Anya on not too long ago, and she was saying that, uh, you know, they were pretty hands off with the editing process. Uh, are they the same with you? Or yeah. Do you- I- yeah. Oh, sorry. Was there was there uh, a second part to that question? No, no. Just pretty much just asking about like, you know, their editorial input, you know, whether or not you like the lack of editorial input or, you know, if they gave you a little bit more, you know, just your experience with working with them. Yeah, I would say it was mostly pretty hands off there. I, I do remember having some phone conversations with Eric Reynolds where we talked about certain sequences and I was working to kind of draw out a few uh, uh, a few sequences there. And um, beyond that, I think it was it was pretty hands off. 
And I haven't, I haven't really had the experience of working with an editor who had a, um, had some kind of, I haven't really had that back and forth experience of, of working with an editor who had like a vision that I was, I was for, for what the book was going to be that I was trying to meet them halfway or, or that we, that I was trying to, I, I haven't really had a super collaborative experience with an editor, I, I, I would say, but I, I, I enjoy it. I, and what I, have been doing with this new book is having friends, having many friends read it and give me feedback. And that I think has been a good, that I think has been a good, uh, like a helpful process. So. Uh, real quick, going back to the, uh, the book after death trap. So 12 gems on Fanographics. Mm -hmm. So reading that book does pull a lot of references to like fantasy comics and sort of the fantasy tradition, like Tolkien and and D&D in general. Yeah. Was that a big influence into making that story? Um, Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I think that like, I think a lot of the look of that book came from, I wouldn't say it came from uh, Tolkien. Um, I have played D&D, but only only a little bit. And I'm not sh- sure. I guess that was kind of an influence. Like some friends and I were playing D&D briefly when, I, when we were in college. But I think the look of it came from sci-fi comics of like the 1950s and up through 80s. But at the same time, like actually something the influence I was really consciously thinking about at the time, and I don't think it's very apparent in the finished product, was like Japanese RPG games I played growing up, like Final Fantasy and everything. I think that the, the way Final Fantasy VII mixes fantasy and sci-fi elements was a big part of my thinking about that book. And um, also the... I mean, you don't travel between planets in that game, but it, but it, at the same time, it is just this like gigantic fantasy world that you're you're exploring. I think I think that idea was very much in in my mind at, at that time. So yeah, I definitely get that kind of uh, manga element to it because there are moments in that story that pop up like that that mm-hmm. are kind of unexpected, mm-hmm. especially a lot of like reaction shots and stuff like that, where mm-hmm. things begin to be a little more exaggerated because mm-hmm. everything is, is pretty consistently rendered in a way. And then you have those those moments that happen and, and that yeah. definitely stands out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think just the way the, the way the characters are rendered uh, reminds me of like, for example, like the old Zelda manga, mm-hmm. and the, the little mini comics and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. I actually like, I don't, so that book for, for listeners is like really intensely crosshatched and I don't work that way anymore at all. I think like I was using some of the thinking about about tonalities and everything that I had learned in art school with like traditional figurative painting and drawing and everything. And I was trying to kind of translate it, that into comics and, and it turned into this like crazy obsessive hatching and, and stippling. And I, when I was working on that book around 2011, I really injured my wrist. I had, I got really bad tendonitis from doing all of the hatching and, oh, man. and, and everything. And I, had, it, I I was living in Boston and at the time and I had like, I got like a cortisone injection into my wrist. I was wearing a brace. I was wearing a cast. I had an MRI. Um, oh, wow. I was doing physical therapy. And then I tell this story to all my cartoonist friends because many of them deal with tendonitis. And, and then like after all of that, treatment the thing that really fixed the issue for me was this ran this um random uh technique i found online that was like uh this ice dip technique where you immerse your wrists in in very cold ice water for like 10 seconds 
every 15 minutes over the course of two hours. And that like really, really cured me. And, and I've never really had that issue since. And of course, I'm working very differently now. So are you still doing that? The icing the wrist pretty regularly? No, only if I have a flare up and uh, with my wrists and, and that hasn't happened in a couple years. So okay. it's, been, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So whenever you're, you know, working on a project, do you usually because, you know, we were talking earlier with Death Trap, you kind of went in with no script. Is that was that kind of something that you just tried for that book only? Do you normally try to come in with the script? Like how long do you let this stuff kind of, you know, digest internally before putting it to page? Like, or is it just different per project? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely different for each project. And with Death Trap, I I remember kind of like going on walks and like letting the story marinate and kind of thinking about the setting and I took a few photo references for the setting for for the for the woodland setting I think I did maybe I didn't have a script but I think I wrote out sections of dialogue in in that book just kind of in pencil on a scrap piece of paper it wasn't anything really systematic I um I've, I haven't yet really worked from scripts including on this this current book lure um but I keep wanting to force try to force myself to write a complete script I keep saying that like for the next book I'll write a complete script but I I really do think I might try to do that going forward. But like, I feel like when I'm working on a big book, I think my brain just likes the visual cues that you get from looking at a comics page. And that, and, and that somehow helps me generate the dialogue and the writing, having the setting and the characters established and then, and, and like a general plot arc seeing them on the page somehow helps, it helps me generate the, the dialogue better than looking at a, text file um of a script but i because i i i tried to write a script for this book lure and and i had this strange experience where like i would read over the script i was writing and 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 it just and i didn't think any of the dialogue worked but like what i was actually writing out on the page i i'll kind of pencil out the dialogue and kind of erase it and edit it and fuss with it but on the actual finished page of comics and i found that like when i was working that way that I I liked the results better. I liked what I was producing better. And so I don't know if that means that I'm incapable of writing a script. I don't, I hope not. (laughs) But because I think writing a script is smart and like I would encourage people to do it because it does help you sort out things in advance before you begin working on the finished pages and, and everything. So I'm in favor of scripts, but I don't do scripts right now, but I, 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 I'm going to keep trying to, to write a script. So yeah, I can relate to that, man. I'm I'm not I keep telling myself that I'll write more scripts, but I tend to lean more heavily into just visual cues like you. Yeah, I'm I'm all thumbnailing um and I'll write like dialogue ideas under a thumbnail, but it's never mm-hmm. scripted out. Right. But- it's just too much like if I've I just feel like I'm going to overthink it if I script it, but it's probably, yeah. you know, better for bigger projects. I always work pretty short as far as like right. my stories, you know, they're, you know, six to eight pages at most. So, yeah, yeah, I, I have the luxury. I don't have to do that. But if I did, you know, I've got a couple projects that are a little longer that I'm planning on scripting out just because I feel like it'll keep me more on track. But I'm just hoping that I don't do too much in like the pre-production on the script as far as like being too hard on it, because usually I just go straight from thumbnail to pages. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that a lot of your work was done using nibs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about that, about kind of your preferred tools, how you got to those decisions? Yeah. um, I use, let me grab it. I use, um, I think it's, 
I think it's a Speedball 512 nib. Um, it's like a spade tip nib. Um, and uh, that's what I used on Death Trap. And that's what I'm using on the current book. Um, for 12 Gems, I used a much, much smaller nib. I think one of the smallest ones you can get that's like a, that just has a, um, just a little point uh, on the end. It's not like a spade tip. That, that was what I used for like the tiny cross hatching and everything. I don't know, yeah, I just really like working with nibs. Um, I've tried I've tried everything, like back in my mini comics days, I used brushes, I, and I, I do use microns for straight lines and background elements. But yeah, I don't know, I just really like the feeling of working with ink and using a nib. I think it, yeah, goes back to that fine arts training, so. It was uh, with 12 gems, you mentioned, okay, so using that smaller nib, uh, how big were these pages for the 12 gems pages? They were pretty small. Um, they were, so the way I drew those, I think it was like like a 12 by 18. I don't know if that's the exact measurement sheet of Bristol divided in half. And then I would draw two pages on one sheet of Bristol. So I would draw like a spread on a sheet of Bristol. So yeah, and then I'm working a little bit bigger now. Like I'm, do, I'm using an 11 by 14 sheet of Bristol and using the whole page for, uh, for that. So. Okay. Do you prefer to work smaller? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I guess, do you guys work bigger than that? I guess that is relatively small. I, I usually try to, my books are always like eight by 10. So I usually mm -hmm. work on like a nine by 12 Bristol if it's like yeah. physical or, you know, usually that's what the digital canvas is if I do it digitally. Yeah. Just to give me a little bit extra space. But I've done smaller, especially when I was first doing mini comics, I was working at like 11 by 17 cut in half. Yeah. So a little bit smaller, but I usually try to stick to that eight by 10 format. So I usually roll with nine by 12. Yeah. Yeah, I normally do. If I'm doing comic pages, I'm usually working on 11 by 17. Okay, cool. But I think a lot of that is because of the tools I use, though. And I prefer to draw a bit larger anyway. And even on an 11 by 17, I still kind of struggle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with drawing at that scale. Yeah, for me, it's just kind of a question of time. Like, I don't want to work on a gigantic page. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I think it's just it makes the whole process more economical if it's smaller. And so for sure. Have you seen those like Prince Valiant pages in real life? They're like poster board size. It's yeah, ridiculous. I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I saw some in Columbus when I was at CXC and I was just like, fuck, like, you know, you got whole crowd scenes at that size. And I'm like, why would you do this to yourself? Yeah, that's I love Hal Foster's art, though. It's it's so amazing. I, I Oh, yeah. My favorite thing, I, I've been to C2E2, I think, like two or three times since I've lived in Chicago. And my favorite thing is always going to the going to look at the original art, the pages that are that are for sale. Um, and, you know, just to look at them, they, they're they're like a few vendors who, who have like really amazing collections and they have them just in these big binders that you can flip through and so you can see them up close. That's a lot of fun. For sure. There was a, a comic show here in Louisville recently and a guy had a bunch of like uh, Mazzucchelli Daredevil pages. They were like $7,500 each, but just like flipping through those and holding them in your hands. It's just like a right. whole, <laughs> I just love seeing that shit in person too. Yeah. It's awesome. It's really jarring when you see original art that's much larger than you had initially thought they would have been when yeah. you, you know, reading the books. Like I remember going to that Klaus exhibition in Chicago. I want to say that was at, at MCA. Uh, they, they had that big exhibition showing all of Klaus's work. And, yeah. had, they, you know, they had the original pages on the wall. And those things are huge, like massive 
way more than I thought they would be. They're like something like 30 by 22 or some shit like that. They're huge. Yeah, I think they might be even bigger than that. And getting up close to them and seeing a lot of stuff that might have been lost when it gets scanned and printed, it is really jarring. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot more work in those pages than I think you would initially think. Yeah. I've seen some Chris Ware pages and kind of thought the same thing. Like, just the draftsmanship is really impressive. Like, the fact yeah. that, like, you know, they're making, like, incredibly large straight lines and perfect circles. Like, I don't know what tools they're using, but I mean, like, a lot of that stuff is lost, like you said, whenever it's, you know, shrunk down to whatever size the book's printed at. Yeah, yeah you don't really get the scope of it. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I'm ashamed. I think that Klaus exhibit was in like 2015 or something. It was, yeah. I actually did not go to it. I am so ashamed I did not see it. I probably would have been able to recall the museum more quickly if I had actually gone <laughs> because I I, I I didn't go. I'm, I'm, I'm so ashamed. I, I definitely missed out. Yeah, it was yeah. an amazing uh, exhibition yeah. for sure. Yeah, I know Blake almost got kicked out of the museum when he went to it in Columbus. They were like, security kept coming over to him because he was taking pictures of everything. And they almost <laughs> kicked him out, so. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you feel? You know, you're a cartoonist in Chicago. You've lived there for a few years now. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we kind of touch on it a lot on this show because we've talked to a lot of cartoonists from Chicago. Mm -hmm. do you, where do you think, in, in America, where do you think, like, the hotbed for cartoonists is? I think Chicago is probably the most interesting scene. There's so many different, like, so much variety of work that's coming out of there by so many talented illustrators yeah. and cartoonists. Like, how do you feel being yeah. a part of that scene? Do you, do you do, like, the whole, like, you know, social aspect of comics? Like, not necessarily a drink and draw, but, you know, do you right. work shop with other cartoonists and so forth like how do you feel about the Chicago scene in general I love the Chicago scene I mean yeah I'm biased I feel like it but I do feel like it's maybe the best scene in America I go out to you know events occasionally exhibits and um hang out with friends you know in the scene but yeah I um I it's just a really it's a really great welcoming uh, scene with, yeah, like you said, a diverse array of work being made. And it just like I, I, I think maybe a lot of that comes down to the nature of Chicago itself, which is that it, it just doesn't to me have like a really big city vibe where like you're you have to schmooze with people you have to be e e cooler than the next person and blah 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 like it just doesn't have uh what i think new york and la have and so i think it it's it just it's just more more welcoming i guess to all to many different creators and 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 there's not like some stupid hierarchy I, I i don't feel you know to things and i guess that's that's why i really love it and uh, but yeah, I don't know. I we're all like shut-ins, and I probably don't see my friends as much as I as I should or as I would like to. It's just it is a big and a big city with 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 neighborhoods that are kind of far apart where many of us live, and so it can be hard to kind of it can be kind of hard to meet up with people. And um, but yeah, it's 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 such a great scene. I I can't think of anywhere I would rather be. Hell yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. The Chicago comic scene is extremely welcoming, and I don't think I would have gotten into it if it wasn't for how welcoming they, they've been since I started. So, it's, it is... Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't want to say that that's not the case in other cities, you know, in, in the US. I'm sure it is. I'm sure... Just judging mm -hmm. by how we interact with other cartoonists online, everybody's usually pretty chill and kind and, you know, more than happy to share. But there is something about Chicago mm -hmm. and the, the community here that's been built up that just is extremely open and wants to draw new creators in and, you know, get them to, to an audience, you know, to mm -hmm. get people to make yeah. more work. 
Yeah, it's 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 great. Yeah, it's very inclusive. I think like there are some really cool comics institutions here, like Quimby's, and Cake has become such a great festival. And there's Zine Fest. Yeah, it's and it's very like live. You know, you can still kind of scrape by here. It's it's relatively affordable. So yeah, it's great. And you're also making music there, right? Aren't you playing in a few bands right now? Um, I just play in one band. We we haven't practiced since the since since quarantine began. But um, I play in a punk band with uh, my partner Anya called Spirit Trap. And yeah, we we we've been a band for about a year. We've played a few little local gigs. There's a cool kind of punk scene here on, uh, especially around the south side where um, yeah we play a lot of small bar venues and and diy venues so yeah how much does music influence your comic work um well i i think it was just like i i mean music was kind of my first love culturally like i in high school i was like i i went from being like into being like a bedroom black metal kid to to i went from that to kind of like going out to these when i was still in high school my my friend took me out to to a lot of noise shows noise and experimental shows that were happening in lexington kentucky which oddly had kind of an interesting and thriving like noise scene with a lot of diy venues and a lot of cool a lot of really amazing acts came through there like wolf eyes i've seen many times and uh the band Carolinar. um that was that was really formative for me um seeing Carolina because for people who don't know they were they're like a long-running um San Francisco noise band that that has this kind of like 19th century theme there's there's a lot of it's very theatrical there are a lot of theatrical visuals like costumes and painted backdrops and everything and then and then like when I was when I was in high school we my friends and I were really into Fort Thunder which was composed of several cartoonists who were also in bands. And so I, I, I wouldn't say so much that the music influences my cartooning so much as just that the, the world I was, I was part of. I mean, and, and when I was in art school, there was kind of a music scene blowing up in Baltimore with Dan Deacon and all of these like Wham City acts. So I think those worlds have just always kind of existed hand in hand for me rather than one influencing the other. So, and I played in a band uh, in college called Witch Hat with uh, Noel Freiburg and Connor Stecksholte who who are also cartoonists so yeah i went to a couple of shows in in lexington yeah a couple of noise shows in lexington too yeah it was always kind of funny because uh there was they were really accepting because i was in bowling green uh for college and like noise there was no noise there so there was a couple of my friends that did noise projects and they're always having to go to lexington to play shows so i would travel yeah. with them so it was it was like and i was actually surprised by the turnouts of some of those shows just because you know sometimes noise shows are you know two people so um yeah they <laughs> right, were right, right. super <laughs> accepting i saw actually i don't know if you're yeah. familiar it was super weird i saw a lightning bolt this is probably like 2011 at cosmic charlie's mm-hmm. and i was just like man out of all the places you guys could have played this is like the weirdest spot but it was cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's weird i think lexington um and lexington i don't really you know i is is not a major city but i feel like it's followed the pattern of many major cities where a lot of diy venues are gone now and and i guess rents have gone up and and there are only like a few kind of mid-sized clubs left so it's interesting yeah, for sure. I'm I'm so detached from like local music now. It kind of sucks. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I you know I I support anything that's going on. I think the last show I remember I saw Ann Albatross in Lexington, and it was like fucking mm. awesome. But um, yeah, yeah. Cam, you should start a you should start a one man harsh noise outfit. Yeah, no. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> That'd be pretty sick. 
Uh, yeah. So, Lane, uh, where can people find you online if they want to check out your work? Yeah. So, I'm on Instagram, Lane, L-A-N-E. Uh, underscore Milburn, M-I-L-B-U-R-N. Um, I don't have like a real grown-up website yet, but hopefully one day I will. <laughs> but that's where people can find me. <laughs> cool. cool. And you're not on Twitter, are you? No, no. Okay, yeah. Alrighty. Well, uh, we want to thank Lane for joining us for this episode. Lane, thanks so much for coming on. and, and uh, Thank you guys so much for having me. Yes, it was so much fun. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming for on. Sure. Looking forward to the new book. Yeah, yeah. Please uh, keep us in the loop because that's going to be a hell of a book, I think. Yeah, thanks, and I'm I'm look look forward to you know uh, your guys' projects as well, and I'm excited to see what you've been working on. Yeah, hopefully we can. We say this like at the end of every show, but uh, you know, hopefully we can all be at some shows soon, link up, and say what's up to each other in person soon. So for sure, yeah. Yeah, it'll be nice being back in the tabling season. Yeah. Never thought I would say that or feel that way either. <laughs> like, as far yeah, as like wanting to table. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, yeah, yeah, you never miss it until it's gone, man. We're <laughs> right. just deprived of it for long enough and then you're, yeah. For real, for real. All right. Well, yeah, that'll about do it for uh, this episode. Episode 25 is in the books. Uh, we will catch you in the next episode. If you want to follow us, Cam is at Cam Del Rosario. And I am at Mort Crimp Jr. on Twitter and Instagram. So please give us a follow and uh, send us your questions, comments, reviews, whatever you have, you know, that you want to throw at us. And like Cam said earlier, please like, subscribe, review, share, etc. Uh, so we can grow the Gutter Gang Nation. So until next time, uh, stay gutter.